The war in Ukraine is lasting for almost three months now. This came as a surprise to many and has now kicked off a chain reaction of effects and events that hardly anyone had in mind when the war started. My name is Elizabeth Mink of ICMPD Communications Officer, and in this podcast episode we look at Africa, the wheat crisis and new emerging migration movements. I'm happy to welcome Nazreen Ben-Brahim today with me, who is a researcher at ICMPD and has a, a focus on Northern Africa. Welcome, Nazreen. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me. Nazreen, can you help us understand how is the war in Ukraine affecting the wheat prices globally and why does it have such an impact on Northern African countries? Maybe start with the situation. Where do we stand now? What's the problem? Ever since the war started in Ukraine, we have seen several changes in, in terms of food supplies across the world. Um, and specifically in Africa. During the month of Ramadan, which was uh, April of this year, we've seen um, shortages of bread, which are important food staples for a lot of countries in North Africa. And that has caused a lot of distress for people. We've also seen prices going up, which is also a source of, of distress for, for citizens across the region. And this is because the wheat supplies have been disrupted since the war started. Why have uh, the wheat supplies been disrupted? Well, for a number of reasons. First, a large number of African countries import their wheat from both Russia and Ukraine. So we've seen that many countries, including Egypt, Tunisia, Libya, Congo, Somalia, Eritrea, import large portions of their wheat from both Russia and Ukraine. So, for example, Tunisia imports around 80% of its total wheat supply from both Ukraine and Russia. Libya is at around 75%. Egypt, which is the world's largest importer of wheat, mm. imports 85% of its wheat from both Russia and Ukraine. And with the war starting, a lot of the supplies that usually go to these countries were not, be, were not able to leave the ports of Ukraine, uh, which represent the main route how, how the wheat is exported from Ukraine to, to Africa. The first reason is literally that uh, ships cannot uh, leave the ports. Is that correct? Correct. So so for, for the Ukrainian wheat, ships were not able to leave the ports. The route through the land borders uh, represents a very small proportion of how wheat is usually exported from Ukraine. Uh, so as I mentioned, the majority comes goes through the ports. And then for the case of wheat coming from Russia, um, a number of countries introduced sanctions on, on imports, including wheat imports. So that was also another disruption there that kind of affected the supply of wheat. And we know when a good is, is in high demand and short supply, then the price goes up. Right. And, and I mean, globally, there have been also other dynamics um, that are worth mentioning that also affected the wheat prices. Um, so we know in the past few years, climate change has also played a role in, in how wheat is cultivated. Uh, and we've seen more recently that China, for example, has struggled to, 
to meet its usual output of wheat because of floods in India. The heat wave earlier this, this spring also affected the predicted output of wheat. In the US, we've seen also similar trends of, of how climate affected uh, wheat production in Europe as well. So this comes in a context where, where there are changes affecting wheat in general, and then adding to that the impact of the war. So uh, let's look at the export numbers. Globally, both Russia and Ukraine rank among the top five exporters of wheat. And uh, in terms of uh, on the receiving end, how much of that proportion is imported by Egypt and Tunisia? So it is true Russia and Ukraine do supply um, the African continent, continent as a whole uh, with um, most of their wheat. When we look closely at countries, we can see that Tunisia imports 80% of its wheat from, from Ukraine and Russia. Um, Libya imports 75%. Uh, and the reason I also highlight Libya is because it is closely related to Tunisia in terms of its food supplies and also uh, migration trends. Um, in Egypt, which is the world's largest importer of wheat, the country imports 85% of its uh, like total wheat supply from Ukraine and Russia. So there have been a lot of attention put lately on, on Egypt as the main wheat importer in the world, but also as a country that Uh, feeds a hundred million population through its wheat imports. And what happens now with the crops that were harvested already in Ukraine or and or Russia? So, so we know um, Russia continued to export some of its wheat to some countries. Um, for the case of Ukraine, uh, we've seen that there have been negotiations to to allow the wheat to leave the ports um, and reach the countries um, in this context. Um, these negotiations are still ongoing, so it's hard to predict in which direction uh, the situation will develop. But what we know is that there, there, there are reserves in Ukraine that can provide enough supplies for a number of countries and that the wheat itself is stored and and sometimes there are issues with accessing the storage the storage facilities um, to export the wheat so there are a number of, of obstacles before the wheat is able to to leave ukraine that will need to be resolved let's uh, re-establish uh, the numbers first as well so how much did the price for wheat go up since the start of the war so we've seen in the aftermath of the war um, that the price of wheat went up by, by 30% in the following weeks and months. And the trend is that it's been going upward. This is also driven by, by, other, by other factors. So as I mentioned earlier, in India, there, which is one of the top five exporters or producers of wheat, There has been this huge drought in the country, which meant that um, its forecasted production of wheat was lower than, than what was um, expected. And as a result, India decided to impose a rule against exporting its own wheat. So the idea is to prioritize the, the, its own population, to, to consume its own wheat. And this kind of drove the price of wheat even further upward uh, as a result of now this more limited supply of wheat globally. What does this all mean now for the importing countries? What Could you already see some reactions? How fast did the prices really go up for the consumers and what were the reactions? 
Um, absolutely. So we've seen sort of the impact unfold across um, the African continent rather fast. We've seen that in the Horn of Africa, for example, a number of, of organizations, including the World Food Program, uh, kind of sounded the alarm for, for a famine um, that will ravage the region and that there should be an immediate response to, to avoid this. In, in northern Africa, we've seen prices of, of bread and supplies of bread becoming very limited. So in supermarkets, a lot of Tunisians and Egyptians are finding it hard to to kind of buy um, wheat and, and flour the way they used to before. I think this is very similar to other crises we've witnessed before. Whenever there was a price change for fuel, for example, we see people queuing to refuel their, their vehicles. But this is important because it's also about how people behave when they expect a crisis to happen. So it's not necessarily that a crisis is already happening. But in people's minds, they know that there will be something in short supply. So then there's a rush to mm. buy that item. And that's something they've already learned from uh, previous crises, right? Exactly. Correct. So whenever there was a crisis with, with bread supplies, people would go and stock up on bread. If there's a crisis on sugar, people will go and stock up sugar. If, if you know, governments announce that they will increase the price of one item as of the next day, people go and buy that item. So it's also a behavior that people learn as a result of these shortages that happened over decades ago. Are there historic examples where bread shortage or wheat shortage have has caused any political turnovers, turmoils? Absolutely. I think this is this is an important point to raise. Um, so in a context of um, economic and political instability, these food shortages can make these crises worse. So in in the context of the Arab Spring, we've seen these revolutions happen in a context of, of economic crisis, um, in particular looking at, at food prices that have gone up, fuel prices that have gone up, which is the case currently in these countries as well. Um, so th that is usually an indicator for more things that could potentially happen. And we've seen also following the Arab Spring across the region and the political instability that resulted from, from the protests, from the regime changes, from government changes, that a lot of people aspired to migrate and did migrate elsewhere due to the limited future perspectives they saw in their own countries. And uh, are there any estimations already to resolve this wheat crisis in order to prevent any major political uh, uprisings or uh, even re small revolutions to happen? So leaders in, in countries in North Africa that are affected by, by the food shortages and um, food prices going up are very well aware of the precedents that exist whenever food prices have gone up and particularly bread prices have gone up. So they have been paying particular attention to this, this particular crisis and how it's been affecting them. Uh, we've seen attempts by a number of governments to secure funding to import more wheat from other countries. So the usual suppliers, um, as we mentioned at the beginning, were Ukraine and Russia. But, for example, Egypt has been talking to the EU, to Kazakhstan, and also to India to import some of its wheat from, from these uh, alternative suppliers. 
Um, and we've seen also the EU provide uh, funding that is dedicated to ensure that there are no food shortages in, in these countries. And, and that is a step in the right direction. We've also seen um, countries receiving aid to improve their capacity of storage. So one of the reasons why these countries are also struggling in terms of ensuring like there, that there are no food shortages is that their capacities to storage wheat are very limited. So in Egypt, for example, officials said that they have between two and four months worth of um, storage supplies for in terms of wheat. And this is seen as, as rather limited for something that is consumed throughout the year by the majority of the population. In Tunisia, we've seen that um, there are talks to change um, how bread is subsidized. Um, and that is a way also to control how much people consume bread. So usually... Tunisians um, consume a lot of bread, so they buy more bread than they actually need, right. and some of it goes to waste. Mm -hmm. So there, there are also attempts to change that behavior and to ensure that people do not buy more than they need by changing the way the subsidy is, is applied and to whom it applies. How would this look in, 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 in detail? Is it then more expensive? Absolutely. There is a proposal to implement subsidies in a different way for a number of goods, including fuel and bread, which are um, which for whom the price has been skyrocketing since the beginning of the war. The idea is that people will buy bread at its full price, so not the subsidized price, which is about three times the actual price. Uh, so then your average Tunisian will not buy you know, four baguettes for for 800 milims, but they will buy um, two baguettes for 1,400 milims instead. So that increases the price. So that's also a disincentive for people to buy more than they need. And then the proposal says that those who qualify for subsidies will receive that money later on at the end of the month. So the subsidies for bread apply differently in Tunisia and Egypt. Um, in Egypt, people get an allowance and they get to go to the bakery and they present this uh, form that entitles them to buy bread and that's how it's done. In Tunisia, any bakery will sell you the subsidized bread at, a, at the same price regardless of how much you make, regardless of how much taxes you pay, regardless of the size of your household. Um, and that's that's what they're trying to change. However, some experts are skeptical that this will work for a number of reasons uh, logistically, but also I think um, Tunisians are used to buying their bread at a subsidized price. And that's also the symbolic nature of bread as something that is guaranteed for every Tunisian, regardless of their income, that is at, at, at risk here when, when the subsidy structure is changed. There are two very interesting points in general and in what you've said. Um, one is about the sort of symbolic meaning of bread. And the other aspect, of course, we have to also consider the geostrategic meaning of bread that is not always necessarily looked at first. So it's quite common to look at oil prices, but not so much um, at wheat prices. And do you happen to have any um, idea why, in fact, in analysis, this is not necessarily the first thing to look at? Yeah, so as you mentioned, uh, bread has, it's not just about food, you know, this bread has a cultural, um, social, historical value for North African countries, for Egypt, for Tunisia, for Libya. 
um, and also a number of other African countries. And as we know, it is really hard for people to change their eating habits. And whenever this was attempted, uh, it has failed miserably and people protested against anything that affected their bread. So there is this attachment to bread. Historically, this comes from from the fact that bread has always been been seen or approached as no one will starve. As long as there is bread, no one will starve in these countries. Egypt, for example, two-thirds of its population is under the poverty line. This is bread will always be something that is there for those populations as well. And, you know, it's a universal good. So this is something that is very central to, to the Middle Eastern and North African cultures. This is where bread gets its importance. It's not just you, something you eat. It's something that is affordable to you, regardless of what's going on in the world. And whenever there is a shortage, something is wrong. I have also a question on overproduction. So it, um, especially if you're living in Europe, imagining that there is a shortage in wheat or for that matter in any uh, foods is very difficult for us, especially for um, generations that grew up after the wars. There is an overproduction of food, a lot of food waste being produced. Could this be a driver, the current crisis to also change Uh, the ways in which um, generally the supply and production and distribution of food globally is being distributed? I think there are more and more talks about um, how wheat is produced and how food is produced in general and how that can change over the course of time, partially because of the war, Uh, but also because of climate change, because we've seen that um, a lot of things make f like food supplies unpredictable, including climate change, and the impact now is being felt even more. So as I mentioned earlier, in the US, in China, in India, also in Europe, um, the production of wheat can go through a critical phase if the right climate is not present at the right time. So there have been also talks about producing wheat and other grains differently, also relying more on choosing particular strains of wheat that would be more resilient to temperature changes, to different soils, etc. But this is still at an early phase, but the conversation is definitely open in that regard. In terms of overproduction, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of countries sometimes expect to have a higher yield and then in the end that is not the case so globally there could be an overproduction but the trade balances are, are definitely something else that should be discussed so where we talk about overproduction in europe or the us we have to also keep in mind that that can also increase the costs for countries in africa to import their wheat from these suppliers compared to Russian or Ukrainian suppliers or other third countries. Okay, but all of what you've just mentioned are basically rather long or mid to long term solutions for this issue. Now, considering that the crisis is impacting this year and very likely next year as well, what do you think, how fast will you be able to see migration connected to this wheat crisis? Are there examples or do you already see something from data? That's a very important question to touch on. We, we've seen in, in previous studies that were conducted in, in sub-Saharan Africa, 
but also in Central America, um, that food crises are closely connected to migration and migration aspirations, and that there, there are ways, basically migration is a way for people to cope with these crises the same way they cope with war, the same way they cope with climate change. It's a way to move away from places that uh, don't provide them with their basic needs, so in this case, food. So studies in sub-Saharan Africa have shown that people usually migrate in a number of ways um, and not necessarily internationally. They tend to go to the nearest, closest town or to the first city across the border um, for, for their own survival. And this is usually a temporary movement. There are a number of reasons why people choose to move locally first um, rather than internationally. First of all, it's, it comes at a lower cost. And in people's minds, it's also, um, it's not a permanent crisis. It's a short-term crisis. So you don't need to invest so much in moving abroad when, you know, it's just a temporary crisis. And also because they usually have ties. So if you move to the next city, you already have connections. You have a social network you can rely on. Maybe the language spoken there is the same. Um, it's also a sense of community. There's a community that can support you. So all of this means that people move first locally um, in order to avoid this crisis. Of course, if the crisis is generalized, then people will consider uh, moving elsewhere, but it's also limited by their abilities to move. If they don't have the resources to move themselves or to move the entire family, then uh, we've also seen that a number of families, for example, would invest in sending their eldest son or the, um, the eldest male in the family abroad and that they would send money back to support the family. So these are ways uh, for, for a number of populations and communities to cope with, with crises, including food crises. In Central America, which is an interesting example, there have been food crises as a result of, of climate, um, but also of, of violence in certain communities. And uh, we've seen that in these instances, people have moved uh, north towards the U.S., so from Guatemala, from Honduras, from um, Central America, towards the Mexican border and towards the U.S., um, and this was closely linked to food shortages. Um, and as I mentioned before, migration is a way to cope with these new um, sources of distress for a number of people. And when it's a longer term crisis, people think of migration differently, not just locally. Another another important movement that we also see in, in times of food crisis is that there are also these rural-urban dynamics. Um, so we see people who are originally from rural areas moving from the city where they were based back to um, the rural areas to support uh, with farming um, and in particular communities. But we've also seen people from rural communities where there was no food supply move to urban areas where perhaps there are better chances of, of securing food. This urbanization movement usually um, adds to an already existing pressure in big cities uh, where we know that there are housing shortages, maybe water supply is not properly provided, maybe there's a lack of jobs, etc. So um, this movement from rural to urban areas in many contexts can create or add to the pressure that these cities are experiencing, which means that, again, uh, there could be other repercussions beyond, you know, the local level. 
I know from our talks um, before that you are currently working on new and emerging trends. And these are also closely linked to this crisis. Can you say something about this? So what are, what is the main uh, emerging trend in migration these days? So one of the things we're currently researching and investigating a little closer is the impact of, of, on the, of the food security on migration, particularly in North Africa. As I mentioned earlier, um, a number of factors contribute to people aspiring to migrate, including food shortages, because the rationale is that people do not see like that they have a future in their countries and therefore they need an alternative. In the case of North Africa, there are a number of factors that are already contributing to these aspirations to migrate that are continuously growing. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, the economic crisis, the political crisis, um, lack of job opportunities post-COVID kind of tapped into that. And then when we when we look at how food security is impacting people's lived realities, um, then we realize that that can be an important catalyst in people wanting to migrate and actually migrating. Uh, we're seeing some early trends in the central Mediterranean route. We cannot 100% attribute it, of course, to, to food security and food shortages. But from the research that was conducted previously elsewhere and also in North Africa, we know that food crises are an important and contributing factor to, to people's aspirations to migrate and their decisions to migrate. Can you maybe sum up how this entire cycle comes into play? Absolutely. Um, so there are a number of drivers for migration. Uh, we know that political upheaval, economic situations, or just people's aspirations to be elsewhere can drive migration. But we don't really look at food security as much when, when we talk about migration. And that's what we're trying to do in our research is to better understand how how food can can really impact migration movements. So, so the food crisis um, that is unraveling at the moment is really a symptom of of the interdependencies between the different markets in the world. And it is important to see how a war that is happening, you know, in Ukraine and Russia is really impacting the livelihoods of people in, in Congo, in Eritrea, in Somalia, in Tunisia, in Egypt and elsewhere. Um, and this 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 kind of manifestation was was important to highlight how all of these factors kind of affect each other, but also how food is at the center of, of many aspects, um, including migration, including wars that happened far away from, from some countries, and also to better understand what drives migration and how to um, improve people's livelihoods um, across the globe. Thank you very much for your um, estimation of the situation, for explaining how this extremely, I would say, on people's minds, unlikely situation of a war on Ukraine, on Ukraine's ground, has really impacted the lives of millions of people, in this case in the Middle East uh, and in North Africa. So that's, um, that's not that easy to, to understand always and to see those interdependencies. So very grateful for your explanations today. 
we can just hope that the efforts being currently made will be uh, successful and will be implemented very, very quickly so that this does not turn into a full-scale crisis. To all our listeners, thank you very much for being with us today. Please listen to all our other episodes on Ukraine where we go into other details of migration and uh, Ukraine relations. And as always, thank you very much for tuning in and see you at the next episode. Stay up to date on ICMPD's activities and visit our website icmpd.org, sign up for our newsletter and follow us on social media.